our scripture reading for today. It's from Matthew 26, 36 through 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from thee. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away, and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we have reached the final Sunday in Lent, and we are ending this season in the same way we started, really. This 40-day Lenten journey began with the imposition of ash on foreheads and, or, or hands, a ritual that served as a reminder of our mortality, a reminder of our weakness and our human limitation. It, it reminds us, in part, that vulnerability is not a curse to ignore, Vulnerability is not a hurdle to always be overcome, but it can be a gift to be embraced. In fact, this is one of the things I think Jesus has taught us throughout the first bit of the Sermon on the Mount over the past couple of months as we've worked through Matthew chapter 5. I think we've discovered that vulnerability is a part of life in God's kingdom. So today we are returning to this well-known story where Jesus, I think in part, demonstrates the beauty of vulnerability. Today, of course, is Palm Sunday. If you didn't notice, Kyle uh, has his Palm Sunday shirt on, so great object lesson for us. Today is Palm Sunday, the Christian feast that falls on the Sunday prior to Easter. This is a day that marks the beginning of Holy Week, the week that leads us to Christ's death on a cross. Palm Sunday, though, commemorates his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, a story that we find in all four gospel accounts as the movement to the cross now quickly accelerates. And this is an important story that is packed with incredible symbolic significance. I think in a way, providing a visual for what Paul is going to teach us rhetorically in our text from Philippians today. But we begin with our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... 
and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and and here Matthew quotes from Zechariah chapter 9, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And now Jesus, who many claim and believe he is the one who is going to restore Israel, now he fulfills that text from Zechariah as he enters Jerusalem. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Palm Sunday. So what is the deal with these palm branches? Why is this significant for us as the church? Or or is it really significant? Why do we set aside the Sunday that begins Holy Week and refer to it as Palm Sunday? I mean... We might be tempted to think this is just a big conspiracy by church supply retailers to make and market yet another cute little item to sell to churches and make a quick buck. Maybe this is my cynicism coming out again. I don't know. And maybe it is in part. It has become that, but it didn't begin that way. There is more to it than that. I know that for Midwesterners, a palm branch is probably uh, not the most familiar of symbols, but in the ancient Mediterranean world, it conveyed a variety of symbolic meanings. In some places, at some times, the palm branch represented peace. In ancient Egypt, it represented something like immortality. In ancient Greece, of course, probably the most Um, recognizable of symbols. In ancient Greece, it represented victory and triumph. And so you would have victorious athletes awarded a palm branch as a symbol of their success in that competition. It's sort of like getting a trophy or a ribbon after your final Little League baseball game of the season, if if you win, of course, Um, which as a kid, at least for me, was always sort of a meaningless gesture. I don't need another blue participation ribbon hanging on my mirror. What I'm really interested in after that final game is, is Coach going to buy all of us a soda at the snack bar before we climb into the minivan and head home with the family? But we might think of palm branches like a trophy or a ribbon representing triumph, victory, But here we find in the gospel accounts that Jesus makes his final trip into the holy city of Jerusalem just a few days before his death on a Roman cross. And he uses this opportunity, surrounded by a crowd holding these palm branches, some waving them in the air, some placing them on the ground beneath his path in welcome expectation of the victory he is sure 
to bring. But Jesus seems to use this opportunity to carefully yet decisively redefine for his people what triumph is. Or at the very least, redefine how victory is achieved. Because we know the rest of the story, right? He is soon going to deliver himself up and allow his body to be brutalized in the most excruciating and demeaning manner possible. And yet, as Christians, we claim that in the events that follow, Christ is indeed achieving victory. It's also counterintuitive. I think it's counterintuitive, especially for those who may have even the, the slightest competitive inclination. For some, maybe this would describe you, for some an end to competition is only possible if and when I have been victorious over and dominated my opponent. And even if I lose, that doesn't necessarily mean competition is over because I still rehearse the events that just took place and imagine what it might be like if I could reverse that trend and in the future gain victory over that opponent. Then and only then will that competitive impulse fade into the background. But I think in this event that we read about today and in the events that follow, I think Jesus could be beckoning us into an alternative reality. An alternative reality where victory and peace are achieved not through the domination of those who are weaker, but through his own suffering. On Palm Sunday, we retell the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem. Palm branches waving in welcome procession, the symbol of victory. Matthew, of course, quotes from the prophet Zechariah, Behold, our king is coming. Our king is coming. Victory can't be far behind. Our oppressors are finally going to be punished because our Lord is strong. He is on his way to bring victory. But in a striking, symbolic act, palm branches waving around him, and yet we find Jesus riding this lowly donkey. Riding this lowly donkey, not a war horse fit for a king. Riding a lowly donkey. Not a beast that would signal to everyone around the power and strength of that king. Riding a lowly donkey. Not a mighty war horse to put a little fear in the minds of his enemies. You see, if you put the weakest individual imaginable on a war horse, so, for instance, let's say somebody like me. You put the weakest individual imaginable on a war horse, and they appear strong, not because of their own strength, but because of the strength of the animal. Conversely, you put... The strongest person you can think of, maybe the strongest person from your local CrossFit gym, which it's no surprise to any of you, I don't spend time there. But, or maybe we would think of somebody like an 
NFL defensive lineman like Aaron Donald. You put somebody like, or maybe the million dollar man, Ted DiBiase, for those who are a little older and were into the WWF. You put somebody like that on a donkey, it's laughable. I don't care who you are, if you're riding a donkey, I'm not going to be too afraid. To this day, donkeys are associated with things that are perceived to be lowly. Maybe we would think of underdeveloped or primitive forms of agriculture. We, we don't need donkeys anymore. We have powerful machineries that, uh, machines that can increase efficiency tenfold. Or donkeys are associated even with things that are comical, like donkey basketball, a relic of the past. Have you all participated in something like that? You could probably find videos on YouTube, I don't know, it's something else. But the point is, they're not thought of as majestic or powerful creatures. They don't tend to inspire awe or respect. And yet we find Jesus here taking what is reserved for the lowly, co-opting this as a symbol, saying this is my mode of transportation, not just into the city, but this is my mode of transportation for my kingly entrance. You can keep your war horse. Or maybe to help it make sense to our modern ears, you can keep your fortified motorcade. You can keep your war horse. You see Jesus echoing wisdom from a psalm like Psalm 33. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Jesus seems to say instead, I am choosing this donkey. And in so doing suggests humble vulnerability is his path to victory. You know, the Apostle Paul, when writing to the believers in Philippi and encouraging them to pursue unity and love with one another, he bases that entire encouragement on Christ's humble character. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he goes on in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we find Paul in this section in Philippians reinforcing Israel's monotheistic belief as the foundation of their faith, but he recenters that monotheistic belief on King Jesus. And this was King Jesus' path to kingship. Even though he was God, empties himself, taking the form of a servant, humbling himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
The cross is an event that reframes for God's people the nature of God's kingdom and orients us in a new direction, reorients our thinking away from a world where we see everything through the lens of the power of domination and reorients us toward the power of self-denying, self-sacrificial love. When we, by Jesus himself, are called to pick up our crosses and follow him, that is a call into a life of self-denial. Now, self-denial is not to be equated with self-hate, but it is a summons for each of us to die to self. It is an invitation for us to surrender the need to control every detail in our lives. As Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann suggested, if we are occupied by control, we will be preoccupied by the fear of losing control. A desire for us to control, a desire to always come out on top, is always going to be a losing game. It's going to be a losing game because of what that does to our souls. It is difficult for vulnerability and control to coexist. And a preoccupation with the fear of losing control definitively reveals the lack of actual control we ever had. Vulnerability and control cannot coexist. But if we want to follow Jesus, I think we must be willing to embrace vulnerability as a way of life. I think this is one of the things we learn from this event, the triumphal entry. We continue reading in Philippians 2, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We find that Jesus does indeed win victory over the enemy. We are going to celebrate that next week, Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate it every Sunday as we gather together. Jesus achieves victory over the enemy, but the enemy is sin, death, hell, and the grave. And that victory comes through Jesus' own suffering. And I want to suggest today that we will always be unrecognizable as kingdom people if we insist on always masking or completely eliminating all of our vulnerability. Could it be that our vulnerability and our suffering and how we handle that is one of the ways that we live into that salt and light that Jesus says we are in the sermon? Could it be that our vulnerability and suffering and how we endure that mysteriously also brings us into closer alignment with the Christ who emptied himself? obedient to the point of death on a cross. 
this story that we've read today, we've already referenced it, it's often referred to as the triumphal entry Jesus makes into Jerusalem, which on the surface seems like an absurd title. And if you stop reading the story there, it might be an absurd title, but it is completely appropriate because this humble act, this humble announcement that is being made as Jesus enters the city on a donkey, this is the arrival of the Lord, the King, the arrival of the Messiah. This is his path to victory. In Romans, Paul says that we are more than conquerors. Probably one of the most well-known sections from that letter. We are more than conquerors. Unfortunately, I think at times we misunderstand that to mean that we are the most fierce type of conquerors. And we trade the donkey for the powerful war horse. We trade whatever might make us feel vulnerable or look weak. We trade that for whatever is going to make us appear strong because more than conquerors must mean that we are the best of the best when it comes to conquering. We're more than conquerors. So we conquer and then we go a little bit further. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I certainly don't think that's what Jesus models for us. We are more than conquerors precisely because we understand that life is more than a game of win or lose. We are more than conquerors because we recognize that even when we lose, we win. Even when we die, we live. And if this shift can take place in our thinking, I think we are able then to embrace vulnerability, embrace limitations and human weakness. We are more than conquerors, not because we are great or powerful or have tremendous influence. We are more than conquerors because our lives are hidden in Christ and Christ is victorious. In his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church, Pete Scazzaro wrote this. In emotionally healthy churches, people live and lead out of brokenness and vulnerability. They understand that leadership in the kingdom of God is from the bottom up, not a grasping, controlling, or lording over others. It is leading out of failure and pain questions and struggles, a serving that lets go. It is a noticeably different way of life from what is commonly modeled in the world and, he says, unfortunately, in many churches. This is the path to victory that is modeled and dramatically embodied as Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey. And I think we would do well to sit with this story. In fact, as we head into Holy Week, I would encourage you to spend time contemplating not only this story, but contemplating the story that this one leads into, the story of the suffering of Jesus. The story of what seems to be the end of his life. Though he asks that he might be spared from the terror that awaits Still, the agonizing cup won't pass from him. 
today and the rest of this week as we think about our king walking this path of vulnerability to his death. I think our own limitations and vulnerabilities might be reframed not as a curse, but as a mark of our humanity that we bring before God, trusting in his restoration, his renewal, and his strength, not our own. I saw something on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that I think captures what what I'm hoping to drive home today. It captures, I think, Christianity's radical claim that is expressed in the suffering servant, our Lord journeying to and hanging upon the cross. The tweet depicted Zeus and all of his brute physical strength, chiseled muscles, nothing like me, pictured Zeus next to an image of the stricken Jesus on the cross bearing the weight of our sin and shame. And the tweet read, and as blasphemous as it sounds, I'm going to read it because I think it captures this radical claim that the Christian faith is making. The tweet read this, Real gods like Zeus are forms of the good, strength, power, beauty, health, virtue. Fake gods like Jesus are forms of the bad, weakness, powerlessness, humiliation, Ugliness, emaciation, it went on to say, which gods we worship determine what we manifest. Manifest the good, manifest Zeus. And I think this is exactly why the Christian faith was and continues to be such a radical claim. Because it reframes and reverses everything we've known about victors and losers. Everything we've known about strength and weakness is flipped upside down. Everything we know about control versus vulnerability is shattered. Because it is the ugliness, the humiliation, the wretchedness, the pain of the cross that brings wholeness, that brings hope, new life, salvation to those in need. And we learn that vulnerability, weakness, limitation is not something we have to constantly overcome in order to do something as meaningless as manifest Zeus, quite the contrary. For as the Apostle Paul recognizes in 2 Corinthians 12, that story where he has repeatedly asked God to remove his thorn in the flesh to no avail, he determines, I'm content with this because God, your grace is sufficient for me. Your strength, your power is made known in my weakness, not in my ability to eradicate all weakness. So the question I want to leave us with today is how might we embrace vulnerability in our lives in a way that makes space for God? I want to offer a few suggestions. First of all, I think we can do this by being open about our struggles, our fears, open about our doubts, open about our pain. 
We can embrace correction when we are wrong. We can first admit our fault, admit our failures, admit when we are wrong, and then embrace the correction that follows. We can admit that we don't know everything. We can admit that we need help, that we don't have to conceal all of our need or buffer ourselves against our own lack or our limitations or vulnerabilities. We can begin to break down those walls that we have constructed to protect ourselves, but in the end, walls that have only served to prevent deep connection with others. We can acknowledge that we are not the center of the universe. And therefore, if we're not the center of the universe, not everything depends on our ability or our success. I think Jesus shows us a new way, a way that enables us, allows us to embrace vulnerability as a necessary part of our humanity. A necessary part of our humanity through which the strength of God is known and made known. Would you stand this morning as we transition into a time of gathering around the table of our Lord? As we allow our minds to dwell for the next few moments on these emblems that represent the suffering and pain of Jesus. The broken body, the shed blood. In fact, when you come forward, you will hear those words spoken over you. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Our minds are turning and oriented toward the suffering of Jesus and the life and hope that makes possible. As we come to the table this morning, we pray, Jesus, remind us that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Remind us that we don't have to be strong all the time. That we don't always have to have it all together or present to the world around us as though we do have it all together. Remind us that our hope and our salvation is not in anything we can do or anything that we can achieve. Remind us that we are more than conquerors, not by our own might or strength, but because our lives are hidden in you. And you achieved victory on our behalf. Today, as we gather at your table, we receive, we accept your salvation. Pray that you would nourish us, nourish our spirits, 
through this meal. We're going to make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, you can take the elements on your own. Again, you'll hear those words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and come to share in his resurrection through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?